0: You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host.
1: I am a Bedroom Beethoven. (laughs)
0: welcome people of earth another week another episode of bedroom Beethoven's. you are now tuned into episode 117 my guest this week is
1: my name is chris kilmore Uh, i'm a dj so everybody calls me dj kilmore my friends call me kill i play in a rock band named Incubus been in the band since the beginning of 1998 and we're still going pretty crazy through a lot of different times good and bad I've been on stage with the likes of Black Sabbath, Pantera, Ozzy himself, Tool, uh, Rage Against the Machine, Jurassic Five, The Roots, uh, you name it. (laughs) the list goes on and on
0: aka tyrone shoes right
1: tyrone shoes yes
0: It's kind of cool that no matter how many millions of records you sell, the man on the ones and twos in the hotel room is still at the end of the day a bedroom Beethoven, one of my favorite bands of all time. Ask My Wife, I'm Not Lying, is on the podcast to chat about humble beginnings, battling his way to greatness, and landing the gig of a lifetime. All while we chat about current events and DJ culture. Before we get into it, thanks for listening to the podcast podcast. Feel free to check out my Instagram at Bedroom Beethoven's and hit up the website bedroombeethovens.com. And if you're really feeling the love and you want to show some, Patreon.com slash Beethoven's is the easiest, fastest way to support the podcast. But we all know why you're here, so I'll wrap up the spiel. Hope everyone enjoyed their 420. As we slide into the month of May, my favorite month, might I add, we continue to let the good vibes roll. The great and powerful DJ Killmore, or should I say my new friend Kill, And I are going to have a good old sit down now. Enjoy the show. So this is this is really cool for me because I have been able to enjoy your art for all these years. But you have also enjoyed my art because I was the art director at Circuit of the Americas from 2012 to 2015. So if you attended any event there during that time, including the X Games, MotoGP, Formula One, if you got a ticket, I designed that. Any flyers or art around the track, that was mine.
1: Oh, that's crazy, man. I have some of those hanging in my wall. Right now, actually, then Woo! Yeah, how about that? I'm, a, I'm a big uh, I'm a big uh, MotoGP fan, obviously X Games as well and uh, Formula One, too. But I haven't been to a Formula One race there.
0: Well, I remember a year after the track opened, everybody was buzzing in the office about various bands attending and playing. And they'd be like, yeah, you know, DJ Kilmore is going to be downtown and the next day he's going to be at MotoGP. And then you come back and you see Keanu Reeves and Gordon Ramsay. And man, it, it was some good times back in the day.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't wait till we can get this started up. I, uh, I've i been fortunate enough to actually DJ a lot of the opening parties for MotoGP in Austin. Uh, so that's been really cool. So I come in a little early and, you know, start start the weekend off and then I get to enjoy the rest of the weekend.
0: Yeah. What's funny is uh, the first year the track opened, you can't make marketing materials for many photos of the track because nothing has happened there yet. So I, I had to pull images online from other races and other venues. And I made a poster to advertise the first MotoGP race with a rider crashing into the wall. And the whole creative team, like, started yelling at me, like, you can't advertise people (laughs) crashing into walls or losing their balance. And I said, I thought that's why people showed up. I thought that's what people wanted to see. But maybe they were right. You know, you promote the
1: races, not people getting hurt. I learned my lesson. exactly. That's that's what's great about motorcycle racing. There's no seatbelts, and those MotoGP bikes are you know 218, 220 mile an hour bikes. So the danger aspect draws people in. But yeah, you can't promote that. Can
0: can you do that when you're on a bike and you make those turns? Is is your knee like almost scraping the pavement when you turn? Can you do that?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I've been. I, I got my first motorcycle when I was seven years old. So I'm I'm pretty. I'm pretty good on a motorcycle. I'm not. I'm not Valentino Rossi or anybody, but I can get around. The, I can get around a track.
0: But this year, I'm sure you had you know more time than ever to be on your bike and explore the road. I'm sure.
1: Yeah, but this year, you know, I've been on big old baggers and cruisers, taking my wife around, and you know, taking long trips and things like that. It's a little different kind of motorcycle riding. It's a weird year, man. We, I mean, we even
0: got a new Public Enemy record this year. Have you heard it? Absolutely. Do think Incredible. it you think it stacks up to it takes a nation of millions to hold us back? I mean it's two different albums, obviously, but it drops during two pivotal points in history.
1: yes, I'm gonna say no to that because it takes a nation is like one of my favorite records of all time, so I'm gonna say it doesn't hold up to that, but it's close. it's close. <laughs> i really enjoyed it
0: what about what about you guys as a band as incubus? What do you do during quarantine? Do you just have weekly zoom meetings? Do you just catch up with each other? You know what are you guys doing?
1: yeah, I would say like Bi weekly to monthly Zoom meetings, you know, just to keep in touch to see what we're doing. Uh, We've done a few things. We dropped an EP right in April of last year when we went into lockdown in Los Angeles. So promoting it and being out on the road and and touring behind it was a no go. Uh, So that just lived on the internet and that's basically it. And we did like a, you know, like a home sessions where we all recorded our parts at home. Uh, of uh, a song called Our Love, and we pieced them together and edited them together. But other than that, we're just kind of, you know, working on small projects from our home. We have some other things in the works. I don't know if we can talk about them yet. We really are kind of taking the time off and just wishing we could get back on tour. Rather than like really putting our heads down and writing new music or anything like that.
0: Well, I'll take you back to simpler times. I'll tell you my introduction to you guys. And for me, it was like a social experiment because it was 1999. I was in high school and I remember two bands where the rap kids liked the rock bands. And it was Linkin Park and Incubus because, you know, Mike Shinoda was rapping. And then I want to say it was because of your scratches. Um, And I'm not going to say that that was the reason why the popularity was there but it it doesn't hurt that you guys were able to kind of bridge the gap and not alienate people who liked one type of music.
1: Yeah. I I think uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you, by the way. Um, (laughs) For sure. uh, I definitely think that our band was lumped into that, like, you know, new metal category. And it was probably just because of the music that the guys wrote when they were like 17 and 18 years old. Because when I joined the band in 98, you know, each band member was in a completely different kinds of music, which made it really awesome because we were really sharing different genres with each other. And obviously then, you know, that came out in our music in the in the next album we wrote with uh, Make Yourself. Yeah, you know, I was a I was a battle DJ back then and I was in a battle crew and I was just, you know, trying to go around and battle different people and, and flex on on fools and do all that kind of stuff, you know, and and somehow I mean, it's a long story, but yeah, I got I got wrapped up with Incubus and all that, just came to an abrupt halt, and it was like, okay, we're making music. Now.
0: After the success of Make Yourself, did you start to see more rock bands trying to turntable stuff? Like you remember the band Crazy Town, they had that song like Butterfly. I always thought, like, man, yep. DJ Killmore, DJ Lethal, maybe Mr. Han was responsible for those bands because as quickly as they came on the scene, almost always their sophomore album. They went away because it was like record labels were signing these rock rock bands left and right. I mean KRS one was on that Crazy Town album. It made no sense. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh
1: Crazy Town had uh AM. That was DJ the, yep. AM was was uh yeah. And then uh there was another band called Head PE, they had DJ Haywall, uh yeah. he's crazy DJ, but I spent a lot of time on the road with him as well. you know around that time when all that was happening like i saw it as becoming oversaturated i mean you couldn't you couldn't get anywhere without hearing scratching i mean if you were in an elevator in vegas you would hear scratching if you're watching a tv commercial you know there was super generic scratching like you just couldn't get away from it so i think that particular fact actually led me to think differently and out of the box and that combined with some other things actually got me into where I started and that was playing keys again. So I kind of realized that I had to expand beyond just the scratching and really dig into the music and you know, I just kind of expanded the palette and you know, nowadays all that scratching is kind of faded out, especially in rock bands. You know, you really don't see any bands really with DJs that I that I know of that are like true rock bands. And so yeah, you know, I kind of saw that I think everybody saw it. I think everybody's getting tired of it, and you know, my my love of of the art form of DJing is scratching. You know, I do it all the time, just even in my bedroom, just you know, just to relieve stress.
0: Yeah, I think even the industry was a little confused. Like they, they, man, we can't keep billing Incubus at Ozfest because people realize, well, this isn't a metal band. So how do we categorize them? So I think it, it did fall on your shoulders to kind of lead the pack. You had no choice.
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember trying to make sets for the Ozfest with the guys and and it was just like we didn't want to be like those bands you know we weren't we weren't like that we weren't partying with them we weren't doing the crazy drugs they were doing and you know it was all around us and it was just you couldn't get away from it but we weren't those kind of guys you know the other guys in the bands were surfer dudes from california (laughs) you know so it was like we just kind of didn't fit in i remember like sitting around and we were talking about what sets are we going to play and we literally on some of the shows we were like we're going to play the softest songs we have <laughs> we're going to do the exact opposite just because we can and a lot of these other bands can't so you know we would we would do things like that but you know we could still get hard and we could still rock with the best of them as well
0: but i mean it, what makes you guys unique, or at least you? I mean, you're really in the hip hop in the late '80s and the early '90s, and I don't think too many people yeah. who grew up in a barn in Pennsylvania are hip hop heads. I think that's
1: unique. <laughs> that's super unique, man. It, that was a struggle. That was a struggle. <laughs> I was, I was a, I was adopted at, at uh, well, at birth basically. Six months I was adopted, and I was adopted to a family that moved out to central Pennsylvania, and I was out in the sticks growing up you know, as a, as a little brown kid in a white family. So I was all out of place, man. <laughs> so hip hop was like my punk rock, you know, as I was hitting teenage years. So when you
0: when you hit teenage years, you and I were the same. We both got a job at McDonald's. But instead of buying a Technics 1200, I bought video games and I bullshitted. And clearly you're in a position where you are now because you bet on yourself at that age. Well, I blew all my paychecks on PlayStation two games, but you know, why did you want the turntable at the time so bad? Cause I always wondered, do people want that setup so they can DJ house parties and stuff, or are they just hobbyists just scratching and mixing records in their room? What, what was your motivation at the time?
1: Man, I, I think it was, the, I think it was scratching. I think that I somehow, you know, I was a little kid. I really didn't know anything. You know, I could have bought video games and going on to you Know sell out stadiums because <laughs> that's what those video game kids are doing now, but um, yeah, I, I just really liked scratching, I really liked hip hop, I really liked that I didn't understand how they were doing it. And I think once I realized that you needed a direct derived turntable, because I was scratching on any turntable that we had, you know, my dad was getting so angry because I was, you know, just ripping belts and you know, trying customizing all his belt, nice belt drive turntables and you know then i figured out oh you, you need a direct drive turntable and that was it i was like Technics 1200 that's it you know cash money's using that uh, jazzy jeff is yeah. using that you know like like everybody's using that turntable i need that turntable so i was just hyper focused on that and you know my dad was like look if you can get one i'll i'll buy the other one and that's kind of you know that's kind of was like all right well i can mow lawns or i can actually kind of get a gig at McDonald's and that's what I did. Dope. So yeah, I had a, I had a 1200 at like age 15 and I, I was off to the races. So when you get
0: a little bit of clout, like how did, like, excuse me for being naive, but how does it work? Cause we just talked about DJ AM being synonymous with crazy town. I always wondered when you see a DJ who is exclusive to an artist, like you remember alchemist was Eminem's DJ, DJ Arrow was with timey yep. Lee. Is that like, is that yep. like a, like if you're a popular artist, Let's say I'm Chuck D and I'm like, you know what, DJ Kilmore, I like you. You got skills. You're my DJ now. And wherever I go, you go.
1: Is that kind of how it works or it can work? I, I think it can work that way. I think it does work that way more times than not, especially in the past. You know, we have short attention spans these days for music and for groups. So, you know, they change a little bit more. But yeah, one of my good, one of my good DJ friends is Z Trip, you know, and he, he's LL Cool J's DJ. And actually don't know off the top of my head how that actually happened, but I know that LL is like, you're my DJ, like I'm using you. That happened, but that, you know, he wasn't always LL's DJ. It's, you know, a lot of timing and lighting and being in the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. And I, I, as a whole, I just think that era doesn't get talked about enough. I never hear people talk about DJ Qbert and rock radio anymore. I just think the new generation doesn't really appreciate those type of musicians anymore. I, I don't
1: know. The hardcore hip hop heads, especially on the DJ side, will always respect those guys as the goats. Oh, I don't see how they can't, because you know Qbert is still putting out scratch video and he's all over Instagram and Twitch and doing his thing. And when you watch him, it's you're just looking at somebody that can do things that most people can't. So even, you know, even though, you know, we're past our prime and we're not young Dudes tripping out and doing crazy stuff like we used to do, you know. He's still, he's still the best scratcher in my opinion. Well, do my mind. do my
0: listeners a service. Like I've never heard of Talvin Singh before. Can you tell me about his brilliance and why I should check him out? Talvin Singh.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I mean I just, just just look him up, Google him, and listen to the music. Close your eyes, smoke a joint, and and listen to Talvin Singh. Like I can't explain to you why he's brilliant, <laughs> but. Yeah, yeah.
0: Hey, that's a that's a co sign. If I ever heard one, I'll, I'll definitely check them out.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: So, what is it about DJ crews that take their names from pop culture? You know, the beat junkies have the Green Lantern. Executioners got a cease and desist for Marvel because they wanted to be called the X Men. And yeah. you were in the Jedi Knights.
1: Yeah, yeah, but well, we weren't big like like those group, but like those groups were. <laughs> you couldn't get sued. yet. <laughs> yeah, we weren't getting sued. Yeah, and I'm sure there were other crews called the Jedi Knights Jedi Knights as well, but. You know, just as our crew was starting to come up, I-, I left with Incubus. Really, you know, and the I guess the next or the the other you know most famous DJ in that crew was DJ Dusk, and RIP passed away a while years back. So you know that crew kind of dissolved shortly after I went on tour with Incubus, and you know it's just life. You know, we had we had a we had a good couple of years, and we, we were battling like the uh, you know we we would battle all the guys out in Simi Valley. So that was like the uh, you know the Immortal Fader Fighters. Uh, I think that's what they were called. I can't remember right now, but uh, yeah, that was like Exist and Petrix and Spinobi and all those guys and. We would set up our own battles, like wherever, and we would just call them up and be like, "Hey, let's battle!" And they would come to us. We would go to them, and it was like a constant thing. And that, you know, we were always ready at all times, just in case a battle broke out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that, man. And you know, they just remastered the delivery by the four or five dopes, and it's selling for quite a bit on Discog, So the heads still know about it.
1: Are you serious? How you? How do you even know about that? <laughs> cool Walt, Cool Walt on the bass and the raps. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was like my first introduction to a live band in Los Angeles. I was just, you know, doing a thing with the with the battle crew and you know, we'd set up sometimes, not all the times, we'd we'd have like 12 turntables set up in somebody's apartment and you know, we'd we'd each take one instrument and even with the drums, we'd break the drums down, you know, you take just the kick, you take the hi-hat, you take the snare and and so forth. So, you know, I I treated it like it was a band. And then Cool Walt from Four or Five Dopes saw me somewhere and he came up to me and he's like, hey man, you're really cool. I dig your vibe. Do you want to come check out what we got going on? We rehearse like Thursday night. Come, come, Come out, check it out, bring some turntables. So I did because that's what I did back then. It didn't matter. I was all about exploring and networking. And yeah, we made some music and it was corny and cheesy and really fun. And and that led to me being in a few other bands. And then I got the phone call from Incubus.
0: What, so was that like for Incubus, was that like a newspaper ad, a blog on their website? How did you catch wind of the of the opening?
1: No, I was, I was in a band called Beats and Blunts. And it was kind of like a Rage Against the Machine band with two like Rasta singers. And, you know, we were on the up and up and we had uh, Columbia Records looking at us and we got to a point where A&R came in and was you know, setting us up to son- to record a demo. And I walked into rehearsal one time, and the manager, this guy Desi, literally just stormed out the door right past me as I'm walking in. And I walk in, and there's the two singers sitting on the one side with the A&R guy, and, and the rest of the band sitting on the other side of the rehearsal room. And I'm like, what's going on? And the a- A&R guy's like, congratulations. You got a demo deal contract with Columbia Records and I'm your new manager. And I was like, what? And I was like, okay, that's weird. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, okay, where do I sign? And there was nothing for me to do. The two lead singers, they just signed the two lead singers and expected the band to record the music. Oh, that's dirty. That's dirty. Yeah. It was pretty dirty. So I called Desi the next day and I was like, hey man, I, I don't I don't have anything to do with this. You know, I didn't even know this was happening. And he was the guy that actually brought the band to Columbia. And hes he was the one with the connects. So I just made that phone call. And like three months later, he called me up and was like, hey, man, are you still DJing? And I was like, of course. He's like, I, I got a gig for you that I think you'd really like. I know this band's lawyer. And do you mind if I have him call you? So this guy named Todd Cooper calls me up. And he's like, hey, we're looking for a DJ to do five shows up the West Coast. Um, we're trying out a bunch of the DJs, uh, and your name came up. Do you mind if I have the guitar player call you? So I was like, of course. And that was it. I went and tried out, and I think two days later, we were on the road. <laughs> they gave me a, a crazy, crazy demo tape and was like, here, re- listen to this. It was a cassette, and you could barely hear it because it was recorded live in the recording in the rehearsal studio. And they were like, can you learn these 17 songs by Tuesday? And it was I think I think it was Saturday, and I was like, "Ooh, yeah, I can do it." So I just said, "Yeah," and just you know, rocked with it. And then that five days now turned into what twenty, almost twenty three years.
0: <laughs> so at the very beginning, though, let's just say when Battlestar Scratch Latica happens, the whole like yep. Brandon wasn't there that day because he had a dental appointment. So when he hears that yeah. track, did he did he get it at first? Like, was he familiar with Cut Chemist and Newmark? or did you have to champion that track to get on the album because you're the one in the group with the most hip hop knowledge i'm sure
1: yeah yeah those guys knew about about cut and new because j5 was next door and i was a huge j5 fan when we were in the studio recording that and i had known cut chemists and newmark just from you know being at barbecues and things like that and you know obviously cut Chemist and newmark are also legends and gods as well they just literally walked by one day on that day and i was like hey i got all these sounds can we just can we just scratch up some verses you take one verse i'll take another verse it was kind of just like let's do something you know and the band was in there just making a real funky cool little groove and i was just like look i can i can turn this into something just let me let me ask these guys when they walk by if they would do this and that's kind of how that came about and then the next day you know we played it for brandon and you know, everybody in the band's open-minded. So Brandon was blown away. He was like, what? He's like, you guys did this in one day? We were like, yeah. So he's like, "Just got to be on the album. We all just knew it had to be on the album. You know, yeah,
0: You know, you know, know, um, Fiona Apple was down the hall too. That, that was a packed day.
1: It was a packed day. I didn't know she was there that day, but I definitely knew she was there. Yeah. 311 was there. There was a, there was a lot of bands coming through. There.
0: I, I had DJ Newmark on the podcast two weeks ago. He was here and we talked about that incident and he said that he contributed to the album because you guys weren't big yet and it was his lunch break and he didn't know that the album was going to go and become double platinum or, you know, he had no idea. So after the fact, he asked if he could get some revenue, some publishing points, and you guys said no. And him and Cut Chemist hired a lawyer to fight that decision and the music lawyer said that scratching doesn't qualify as a bankable contribution to the record. So in the end, he didn't make a cent off that record. He, I think he only got a plaque. Yeah. And let me say, he has nothing but love for you. He, yeah. lo- he loves Incubus and he loves you. But I gave him his chance to tell his side. I think it's only fair that you tell yours. Or you know, if you don't want to, that's fine too.
1: No, we can talk about that. You know, That was my first record with Incubus. And, and I kind of was going through the same struggles, actually. You know, I, I, In fact, back then, I had the same lawyer as Jurassic 5. <laughs> so we were we we might have had the same lawyer. I don't know individually if he had the same lawyer, but it was kind of the same thing and you know that had actually never reached to me. You know, I wasn't a full member of the band at that time, so I wasn't making any of those kind of decisions. That was 23 years ago almost and I'm you know, I don't recall Newmark ever coming to me and talking about that and us having a conversation about that, but it's definitely something that I would have championed for for both of them. Had I known that, you know, like I, I wasn't, you know, really checking for how much any, anybody else was getting. I was just making sure I was trying to get mine. And that was the exact same kind of struggle I was going through because it was scratching and no one knew how to deal with it. It's not vocals. You're not singing it on the record. So it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Knowing that, you know, I'm, I'll definitely have a conversation with Newmark about that because I can't recall us ever even talking about it. And I've hung out with him a bunch since then. And the last time we played the Hollywood Bowl, we actually performed that song all together live. And it was one of the greatest moments I've had on stage with Incubus.
0: I think I think what makes Newmark such a good guy is he's not gonna hold a grudge. And I think he understands that maybe music law was in its infancy back then. You know, yeah. I mean, can you imagine if DJ Premier is scratching on your record? And he doesn't get a contribution. I, I like I like to think music law has evolved since then. Yeah,
1: I think so too. And and you know, we were we were a young band and like I said, like I wasn't a full member of the band, so those kind of decisions weren't coming my way. I wasn't privy to any of those conversations. And, you know, I'm not sure the guys in the band even were. You know, that might have just stuck with a manager who we had since fired you know shortly after that we had fired that manager and then you know we've been through another management or two since then but you know we were on a a contract with sony that was how do i say it nicely (laughs) oppressive it was pretty it was pretty like you know we were in a hole and we were digging a hole financially with sony and and coming to a spot where we could never recoup so you know, eventually we ended up getting in a lawsuit with them and settling and things like that. But that wasn't until two thousand and three. So And you went to
0: Epic Records next, right?
1: Yeah, but that's still Sony. That was a division of Sony. Um, oh, it's the same. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was underneath Sony. So the record industry is a little shady and I definitely, you know, had had i known that or had they come to me and said something, you know, I don't know if I would have been able to do anything about it not being a full member at that time. Like I had, I wasn't even in the band a year at that point, but I definitely, you know, the guys are good guys. I know that in my band after being with them for a while. So I'm, I, I'm not even sure they know that. Wow. Well, I,
0: I appreciate you uh, being honest about that. Cause I was about to say, I thought being under Epic records was liberating because you were able to make that record without a producer. And they had like, you know, Pearl Jam and Corn and Rage Against the Machine and you're kind of this newest group. And they kind of gave you that autonomy but I guess things aren't what they seem. I guess.
1: Well, you know, it's it's all about your contracts. You know, they did they did let us do pretty much whatever they wanted. We had a really cool A and R guy, and he would come in and check in on us. And you know, we were, you know, we weren't a big band then, so we weren't on their radar that much. They were they were checking for you know other bands at that time. And then we dropped that record, and I think you know even even our own record label was like, "Whoa, there's there's something here," you know. And for us, we're just making music. You know, we we make the music, and then the audience perceives it and we don't have any control over that you know we make music like that and we don't expect it to be big we don't expect people to like it as long as it passes our test then we we'll put it out to the world and see what happens with it
0: yeah but i mean you joined the band first up i'm out the gate explosion you know i'm, I'm not going to say the success of incubus is because of you but it can't just <laughs> oh, be. You, a... can oh, huh? you can say you can say okay <laughs> it might be because it's not just a coincidence that the album you joined is the one that rocketed them into mainstream success. The, I think it's the chemistry was enough to make you guys go multi-platinum and sell out arenas. You know, I think the formula was finally figured out. Yeah.
1: yeah, I, I, You know, they, I've toured behind their record science for, you know, that whole year 98 before we went into the, the recording studio, to record, make yourself. So we had chemistry together. We knew it. And we knew specifically what we didn't want to do, you know, and that's from being on the Oz Fest and touring with groups that we just kind of, you know, we appreciate the music, but we weren't that. I'd like to close my eyes to go no, but there's a cold wind coming from
0: In The top of the highest high rise today
1: you know, so I think when we went in to Make Yourself, we were like, OK, we need to do something different than what, what people perceive us as. All the guys in the band are super talented. So we kind of just were off to the races and, and enjoying being young and being able to make music. You know, that, That's the freedom of being on a record label. You know, They give you the resources to be in an awesome studio and around cool people and being on tour and things like that that's definitely an advantage, but then the disadvantage of that was all of that. They're just, they're just putting, you know, they're marking it all down. They're like, okay, you owe us this now, you owe us this and you got to recoup. And Sony owns all of those masters. We'll never own those masters, you know? So, so there's a, there's a compromise there. And depending on how you look at it, sometimes it can be good, but you know, in the long run, you know, it can also be very bad.
0: The human side of it too, you know, you, you explain the industry side, the human side is, I it's been documented that I think you were living paycheck to paycheck in California. You were contemplating New York and then incubus boom, the fame and the money kind of goes from zero to a thousand essentially. And the life of a popular musician is too much drugs, too much sex, too much rock and roll and you fall and you didn't let that happen to you. You didn't blow all your money. I remember you bought a house and you sold it for twice what you bought it for. So you're smart. You didn't enter rehab after rehab. You were able to check yourself and make sure 20 years later, you're still in healthy relationships. You're content. You're happy. I mean, you could write a book on it.
1: Yeah. You know, I think I need COVID rehab, uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I navigated that personally. I've navigated that the best I know how. And, you know, I just kind of think that, you know, obviously, you know, you live, you live life and you make mistakes and, and, you know, when you're out in the public eye and you're in front of people, those mistakes sometimes can be exaggerated and, and blown up. and, you know, I try to live down to earth and pretty humble. I still have the same friends that I've had even before the band and, you know, obviously I have new friends and things like that, but, you know, my OG friends are my OG friends and, you know, they tell me when I'm getting out of line and things like that. And, (laughs) you know, so I kind of, you know, I, I just, you know, I just try to be simple and try to respect everybody. Just like, I'd want to be respected if, you know, I was around some other people.
0: Well, I I think I know the answer to this next question. You know, whenever I bring up the Grammys, you know, most musicians are going to say, I don't care. But I I have to ask because you've sold 23 million albums with only one Grammy nom, and that was for uh, Megalomaniac. And do you have any rhyme or reason why that song was nominated and everything else the Academy has overlooked? I mean, not only did your next album after that, Light Grenades, I think it was the highest charting album. You bumped Jay-Z off the top spot. Yeah, and I think Jay Z's Kingdom Come received the nomination for Best Rap Album, while Megalomaniac was banned on MTV. It just seems like a lot of politics.
1: <laughs> We've been banned on MTV for a bunch of things. Wish you, wish <laughs> were here. Was banned on, on MTV. Yeah, I, I don't know what that is. You know, I know the Grammys is you know it's politics. A lot of a lot of that has to do with the record label. You know, doing favors and and you know pulling strings and things like that. Like I wish we had a Grammy. I think we deserve a Grammy. I have a funny, funny thing. I always tell Brandon. I'm like, man, if we never win a Grammy, when I die, I, at least I hope my name scrolls up on that R.I.P. list for that year. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. But hey,
0: it could be worse. I mean, uh, Snoop Dogg has 17 nominations and he hasn't won once,
1: which is crazy to me too. Like, you know, yeah, Nas finally won his like last yeah, month. Yeah, yeah. Maybe so. You're saying there's still time. <laughs> There's still a chance. Yeah, yeah. It's it's you know now it's it's not it's not the most important thing to me. Obviously, winning a Grammy would be great because it puts you in, a, in an elite club. But that's all it is. You know, it's just a club. It doesn't really you know the music is going to exist with or without a Grammy. I think I just set
0: that question just to tell you I think you deserve one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so do I. So do I.
0: Well, what a, what a story, man! Obviously, you made a, you know the right call. Everything kind of happens for a reason, you know, as they say. And not that I have to plug this, but because plugs for a guy who sold a bajillion million records seems benign. But Bonnaroo is celebrating twenty years on the farm, and it will be one of the first shows of the new world because people have vaccines. And uh, DJ Kilmore and his Incubus pals, you're headlining September fourth, which is a Saturday, along with uh, Lizzo tame impala and john batiste and um yeah you have you have the floor man for anything else that i missed anything that you want to
1: tell people man we covered a lot in that short amount of time you know i'm a talker so i could go on for hours but yeah i hope bonnaroo goes off still fluid situation in my mind anything can happen you know that who knows that this santiago strain of of covid might pop up and you know wipe out half the world. <laughs> so who knows, but yes, we're getting vaccinated, you know. I'm always I'm starting to open up now and and be out a little more as California's opening up and just being safe and wearing masks and things like that because you know, COVID destroyed the entertainment industry and and touring bands and and acts and things like that, you know, they're almost not even talked about during this time. You know, it's all about teachers and things like that, which you know, everybody's important, but One of the industries that hits the hardest is the entertainment industry. Actors, musicians, producers, nobody saw this coming. And hopefully Bonnaroo will be a huge celebration of us taking a step beyond this.
0: How's it changed you? Are you? Do you find yourself being a little bit more introverted nowadays? Do you think you're going to have a little bit of performance rust? Maybe you'll be actually nervous when Bonnaroo happens. How do you? How do you think?
1: You know, I don't know. I'll take it. I'll take that as it comes. I I usually don't get too nervous. There there definitely was one time I really got nervous. Uh, I was in France at a festival. You know, it's kind of like a Bonnaroo situation, and I'm in the front lounge of our tour bus smoking a bunch of. Keith and Hash and Weed with Steph from the Deftones. And our tour manager comes in panicked and is like, You're on stage in five minutes. And obviously, when you come in panicked and and you know, I've been smoking some weed, I'm gonna get <laughs> panicked. <laughs> and I and I and at that time I was doing like a five-minute scratch routine before the rest of the band came out. So I was on stage by myself in the middle of uh it's time. Scratcher, and I look up, and there's like twenty thousand people there, and I just froze. I, it all just hit me. I was like, "Oh, this is not good." <laughs> and I look over to the left side of the stage, and Steph is on the side of the stage, just looking at me, pointing, and laughing. And I'm just like, I was like, "Okay, that's what." Being nervous is really like, and that.
0: Wait, so, what's the sweet? What's the sweet spot? Do you want to smoke for like thirty minutes, forty five minutes before you hit on stage? Not right when you smoke. That's the. That's the trick.
1: That's the trick. Yep. Get it going before you. Before you got to walk on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like I, I'm the kind of guy that just takes it as it comes, you know. So, you know, the most nervous I get is when my mom is there, or it's a really small crowd. And it's really intimate and people can like really see what I'm doing.
0: Because like, I was going to say, I I saw Incubus at Music Fest in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. You guys played into the summer and then you had your own free set at a cafe afterwards. And there was only 100 people yep. there. And Oh, yeah. Uh, So to know that you were nervous, it didn't show. I just wanted to tell you that. But I do imagine the theory behind that is because as a DJ, you're probably warmed up from the Incubus show and it might take you hours to warm up. So at midnight, you just want to keep going. Is that kind of
1: how it is? Yeah, that's more like it. Yeah, yeah. I get more nervous if I do, you know, I don't really get that nervous, like I said, but I I it's more like a responsibility to the other guys. If I mess up, they're going to give me the evil eye and start looking at me like, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and I, I don't want that. You know, if I'm by myself doing a DJ gig, I'm like, I got this. I know how to do this. I've been doing this since I have been 13. It's, just, it's fine. <laughs>
0: I, I hope after this, I can call you kill. Absolutely. Please do.
1: All right. Well, I want
0: to thank you for joining me. And if I can be so bold to say, look for new incubus music in 2022 i don't want to put words in your mouth but maybe most likely
1: yeah i would say you could i would say you could probably bet on that you can definitely bet that there will be something out
0: okay that's good enough and in the meantime i want to wish you a happy 420 good vibes and prosperity brother thank you so much same to you man thanks